Uh, you were joined by myself, Ted Seeley. I'm Emily Cook. And I'm Alex Barton. And today uh, we have in store for you Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. Ozymandias? There's some controversy around that. Ozymandias. Ozymandias settled. <laughs> and William Blake's London. Uh, so this podcast should give you a chance to deepen your understanding of the poem, to uh, explore the context, and start making links between the poems and just uh, deepening your knowledge, you, you big English nerd. So thank you for listening. Uh, so without any further ado, I'm going to hand you over to our uh, history man on the spot, Al Barton, to talk us through the Romantic Poets. What have you got for us, Al? Uh, right, so I think what's really important when you read these two poems and a couple of others in the anthology as well is you need to have an appreciation of Romanticism and what Romantics poets were actually, the message they were trying to get across with their poetry. So they're writing in a time, um, what you call the post-Enlightenment era, where science had, had exploded um, People were using, more and more using reason to, to try and access the truth of the universe. And that led to a what they saw, what the Romantics saw, as a kind of overly rational, um, overly, overly sterile, scientific way of viewing uh, human existence. So, so they weren't fans of science then? Uh, not necessarily, no. No, I don't think so. Um, so what they wanted to do instead was to kind of like re... Reconnect with nature, reconnect with what it is to be a, a human being, um, which they saw as something as a, as a kind of characteristics of, of kind of a, a bygone era. So quite nostalgic in, in that in that respect. So in London and Ozymandias, we see lots of romantic themes. We see the kind of the hubris of mankind, hubris being a kind of a fatal flaw in terms of the pride that you have or the, the self-confidence or self-assurance that you might have. Um, that romantic saw as um, really symptomatic of post enlightenment human, um, well, the human race after the post enlightenment, in the post enlightenment era. Um, and they saw mankind exploiting nature, um, exploiting natural resources, and almost going too far. And you can, you can see um, this, is, this is mirrored today when you talk about the kind of the ethics that surround scientific advancement. Um, and then so that's seen in, in London with the with the urban with the urban um, landscape. It's seen in Ozymandias, where we see the, the kind of like the hubris of the individual, which is seen in the tyrant. Um, and then in both in both poems, we see nature either exploited, as we see in London, or we see nature as a as a source of a sublime experience, which we see in Ozymandias in the desert setting. So, from my less educated mind, are they comparable to hippies? I don't know. I'd, I'd have to know more about hippies to know what that is. So I, the idea of like yeah. like no consequences, free love, like technology is taking us away from what we need to be connected with, carrot juice, that sort of stuff. Possibly. I think they're a little bit more serious than that, though. So it, like with the original romantic, Rousseau, he was, he was all about the kind of um, living a very pure life, but a, a still quite a serious life. Okay, so that was another question I had. To what extent... So were they productive members of society? Were they people who were happy with the way things were or did they want Britain to change dramatically? Um, I, I can't speak for politics. I think this is more a... Um, they spoke more to the individual. Um, so there, there are lot, there's lots, and I, I'm just probably just not qualified to speak on it, but there's lots of um, readings of these poems where they are seen as political and linked with um, the French Revolution and things mm. like that. Um, I always tell um, my students to, to approach them more as... Um, commentary on how to lead your life rather than how to to build you know nation states and Shelley himself especially said that um he hated the idea of didactic poetry mm -hmm. so he hated the idea of um 
just preaching through his poetry. Yeah. Um, it was more just an exploration of um, some key ideas which are which are relevant to people of all times, not necessarily just the, the time that he was writing in. I like that. I like that, the idea of kind of it being about how to lead your life. I think possibly I'd be misteaching that. Um, <laughs> one thing I always think with William Blake, though, is he's got such a downer about just the city landscapes. Like, I think he wrote Jerusalem in it, and he talks about the dark satanic mills. He just uh, seems to love the countryside and hate hate the city landscape. Well, there, I mean, that might be another, that might be where the uh, kind of the link with hippies or later environmentalists is more is more prevalent or more apparent. Um, so if we look at the first quotation, the first line of um, London, he talks about chartered streets and then goes on to talk about chartered Thames. Um, and in this sense, when we talk about chartered, we're talking about the, the buying, the selling, the mapping out of um, the, the streets in one sense, so land, mm-hmm. but also of the River Thames. Um, so if you think, if you talk from a from a romantics perspective, to to see the uh, river, and we I spoke before about sublime environment of Ozymandias, which is the desert, um, where you go into you go into nature to find spirituality. So, so just to clarify, so when you're talking about a sublime environment, do you mean an environment that gives a particular experience? Or? I think the, the sublime is a whole other issue which needs to be um, explored a little bit more thoroughly. But it's the idea that the romantics. Who, who were living in a kind of secularised age after, obviously after this, um, after science had gone as far as it had gone, mm-hmm. um, they looked for the the spiritual experience that you wouldn't normally find in a, as a religious experience. They would go, they would typically look for those in nature. So if we're talking about the other poems in the in which we won't cover today, but if you talk about the Prelude um, and when he sees the peak rising up from from behind the other peak. That is a sublime experience, which is a kind of like an, you can describe it as an agreeable form of terror or horror. Okay. So it's, it terrifies you, it puts you into a kind of, uh, put, gives, gives a, a newfound perspective as to your own place as an in, individual in the world and then maybe as, the, as, as human beings in the world, in the universe or the world as well. Um, and just go, to go back to that first line, that, that adjective used here, chartered, um, it is an example of a romantic thought that humans have gone too far in their exploitation of their surroundings. So we've got the, the river itself, which, you know, is a symbol of, of life, giving life of freedom. Um, the very symbol of nature itself has been bought and sold, brought under private ownership. And that's just a, a very um, kind of quick and easy way to um, to bring romanticism into your analysis of the, of the poem. So we, we, look, we look at the adjective chartered, we, we know because we've already studied this, or uh, well, we already know that um, Blake is a romantic poet. We know that what he's saying is that the Thames, which should be sacred and shouldn't, as a river, should be yeah. left alone, has been brought under the ownership of, um, of you know private interests to be exploited, to be to basically, well, it is in the romantic sense a form of sacrilege. That's a good way of seeing it. Do you not think the fact that the line ends does flow shows there that, that nature still maintains its power there? So no matter how much man tries to control nature and bring it within its realm, it's the idea that, that nature will sort of rule in the end. It does flow. And we see the link with the, the power of nature, don't we, in Ozymandias too? Definitely. So so the power of... So if we talk about the, the kind of... Um, how power, the power of man and the power of nature play off against one another. The power of man is always um, temporal. It's not something that can be, that, that can ever last. And, it, and that's that's explicitly explored in Ozymandias, but kind of in, like you said, it's hinted towards again in um, in London as well. 
I think the idea, I see, I see London really as a semi-autobiographical poem. I know uh, Blake himself did used to roam around London. He, he loved the place that he grew up, that he was born, and, and it really deeply upset him to see, you know, marks in every face that he saw, these marks of weakness, marks of woe. And I'll just comment there on the repetition of that word mark. Um, the firstly, it's used there as a verb, isn't it, as in to notice. So he notices in every face that he sees in London. And then marks used there in its noun form, so marks of weakness, marks of woe. Um, it was a student who said this to me, actually. They said, don't you think it's interesting, miss, that, you know, just like everywhere in London seems to be corrupt, every aspect of language there is being manipulated too. And they, they looked at how mark shifted from a verb to an adjective there, oh, sorry, a verb to a noun there, and I found that quite an interesting comment to make. And I think, Alex, you were going to talk about the power of repetition in this poem, weren't you? So we see, firstly, the repetition of chartered. Then we see the repetition of Mark three times there. Um, and then, obviously, with the anaphoric, in every, in every, in every, in the next stanza. Yeah, and um, more specifically, it's the repetition of this image of the um, infant's cry. So if we look at it's in the second and the final stanza, it's the, the infant's tear. Um, I, just, we were, I just wanted to kind of think about what what that represents um, when you when we see it's easy, like a, a basic analysis of something like a, a child crying would be it, it it brings an emotive response or it's emotive use of language but i think it's worth when you when you write these analysis it's worth unpacking that a little bit so what what is it about um an infant's cry that is particularly um upsetting to the reader and what would Blake be trying to express by by purposefully returning to that image and purposefully um, evoking that response from the reader. So when you write something like, um, when you're um, noticing something like repetition in a poem or repetition of a, of a deliberate use of language, you can look at something like, you can look at the infants and you can find this, you know, in any, in any bit of writing which you look at whilst doing GCSE language or literature. If you look at an infant crying, it, it does evoke a, a a reaction of sympathy in any reader so that and that is because well you've got the the fragility and vulnerability of a child um and that's being exploited by that's being um abused by these by its surroundings you've got the innocence of the child it's done nothing wrong um it, it's completely innocent as it is an infant it's a newborn um but also you we look as as human beings on, on infants and on babies is kind of like the seat and source of all potential. And to have those three things all embodied in this one tiny defenseless um, child being suffering, essentially, you could, you could write that that evokes a particularly visceral reaction in the reader. And when I say visceral, that means that it's something that isn't thought through, it's not rational. And again, you can see, you can see echoes of romanticism here. It's not, about, it's not about what you can think through and what you think is is right and um, and true. It, it's something a lot more primal than that. It's, it's related to your very nervous system. So to have two, to hear and to to have this image of an infant crying in fear in this urbanised landscape, which he so was he was railing against in this poem, really shows um, or really kind of like shows to us what Blake was trying to achieve in terms of the impact on his readers. I think there is worth considering that this was part of the Sons of Innocence and Experience. So this is obviously an experience poem. It's, it's talking about what he did experience. But we have that image there of innocence personified through that child. And the idea that innocence can't exist in London sort of during the Industrial Revolution, to give it its context, the idea that 
innocence becomes experience almost as soon as it's out of the womb and I think that's quite an upsetting image isn't it and if you think about what he's trying to communicate it's that us not recognising the sheer importance the sheer value of truth of reason of nature itself it's damaging all aspects of society and we see the blurring of innocence and the blurring of experience again with that uh, sort of oxymoronic youthful harlots at the end as well yeah yeah, just uh, just a question for you guys. So, looking at, I've just looked at the previous line of that from based on what you said, Al. Uh, in every cry of every man, and I'm just thinking that ambiguity of every cry, in terms of obviously for the infants, we've got the very specific cry of fear, but every cry of every man, and I'm thinking is that perhaps hinting at not just physical crying, but kind of acts that speak of crying. So maybe alcoholism, violence, and the, again the capitalized man there, the every man. Of, what do you think, though? What's being hinted at there? Because we've got the specific nature of the cry of the infants, but the ambiguity yeah. of that previous line. Uh, well, I, I would read it as, as unanimous suffering. Um, so it could be self-imposed suffering. Um, like we talk about mind-forged manacles as well. It's something that's, that's, that, that they are imposing almost upon themselves, but they're products of their environment as well. Mm. And again, I, if you, if you analyse this as a romantic poem, you know, romanticism as railing against... Um, urbanisation, industrialisation, sectorization, consumerism, um, so, and, the, and the environments that were created as a result of that. Suffering is something that we see all the way through this. So it's, it's you know the um, the the verb, well the the cry, well it's used as a noun, isn't it? The crying, but the crying happens all the way through, and the suffering is is ubiquitous. It's everywhere, um, and that, that's that's how I would I would read that line. I see the shift from the first stanza there with the, where the blame is almost put on the institutions for trying to charter things in London. Whereas the second stanza, there's, there's that shift there to the blame should be placed upon the people themselves for accepting that. You know, the idea of the mind-forged manacles. Um, obviously, with links to Jean-Jacques Rousseau there, the idea that Rousseau said, man is born free, but he's everywhere in chains. So we are putting those chains upon ourselves. That's what Blake says with mind-forged manacles. You know, we've created in our own heads, in our own sense of our own identity, uh, these restraints which hold us back. So although it would be easy in the first answer to blame the institutions for chartering everything, clearly Blake wants us to pose that question to ourselves there. You know, what is it that we're holding ourselves back? It's, it's self-imposed, isn't it? And imposed upon our children as well. You know, you're kind of uh, condemning the next generation before it can before it can flourish. And again, it's that image of the child as, as innocent, yes, and vulnerable, yes, but also full of potential. And if you and if you enslave that potential before it's had a chance to really realise itself, that's, uh, that, you know, and again, to come back to Rousseau, so the soul of the child is the original rebel mm -hmm. um, and the kind of the source of everything that's pure and good in the world. If you take that away, then you're taking away, in a romantic sense, you're taking away what it is to be to be a human and you're suppressing that. Absolutely, that's sort of epitomising the final line of the poem, isn't it? You know, and Blight's the place, the marriage hearse, that juxtaposition between there, which is something which is supposed to be so full of promise, so full of potential as a marriage, something new, something exciting. But that final line of the poem, hearse, obviously connoting death and the idea that anything that we see as having value or promise or potential dies before it even gets a chance to flourish. But we are doing that to ourselves. We're doing that to society. And that's where we're choosing to live. So he did not like the city landscape. Is that fair to say? Definitely fair Just for your yeah. kind of lower yeah. ability learning here, I appreciate that, <laughs> that differentiation for me. Thank you. Low priority, anyone would prefer to say. Okay, fair enough. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, so I think 
Um, but, so we'll talk so it's just to, can we stay in London for a little bit more? Oh, he I, loves if we just, it. If we just talk about... because um, he knows all about it. He did the research last night. No, there's just one thing, there's one thing that I think we just need to cover about the, the church and the palace. And it's actually something... We got to, so if we talk about the church itself, the blackening church and the... Um, the running in blood down palace walls, talking about the soldier, mm-hmm. the church especially. So one another part of romanticism it, is talking about bemoaning secularisation um, yeah. and how governments are less and less... Well, I mean, the influence of church institutions is was weakening, but also I think he sees it as... Um, I mean, himself as a Christian himself, I think he was seeing that the church... A very conflicted Christian. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the, he, saw, but he saw the church as the institution, as uh, not fulfilling what it, what it needs to fulfill. So mm-hmm. they're suffering everywhere in this urbanised landscape. And, uh, and possibly as a result of secularisation in terms of the church maybe um, deteriorating in terms of, what, of its actual moral purpose and becoming more of a, uh, probably a, maybe a corrupt or bloated institution, which he, which he, didn't, he didn't agree with. He describes it as a blackening church, which can, you know, we have connotations of decay there, mm-hmm. decay and, and then even possibly connotations of evil. Um, so to see that as well, um, so he sees that you see you, you almost as he moves through the city, he goes from the from the individuals to commenting on the institutions as well. Um, so just as just as he sees these people as um, having their uh, their kind of like mind forged manacles and self inflicted wounds, he also sees that those structures of power um, are they're, they're equally culpable. The church especially is especially poignant, seeing as that their their role traditionally should have been should be um, charity and compassion, and yet it's the, the church itself is failing in, in that role. Mm-hmm. And then that scene again with the um, with the, the blood that runs down palace walls. Um, that's the 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 rich, the rich, the powerful. They are insulated within palace walls, and the blood runs outside. Absolutely, it's about them avoiding blame, isn't it? The avoiding blame, despite it being so glaringly obvious to anyone who looks, because you've got that sort of visual imagery used, the blackening church and the blood on the walls. Um, you know, it's plain for everyone to see where the blame should lie. And I think that's quite important. Yeah, that The institutional powers here are avoiding the culpability of what they've done. So, London, it can't be understood outside of that romantic context. Blake's railing against the urbanisation, the industrial age, what it's done to people and the institutions that have inflicted that. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, I think that's, that's fair to say. Okay, right. So uh, that's one eternal piece of art. Understood. <laughs> On to the next one. Ozymandias. Uh, Ozymandias. No, Ozymandias. Or Ozymandias. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, well, who knows? It's open to interpretation, as mm-hmm. everything is in poetry. Apart from the fact that Shelley is a man, a lot of my pupils tend to just think because he's called Shelley, it must have been a woman. So well, he had a masculine name like Percy, so Well, yeah, they like to ignore that, so yeah. It's clear that before we go any further, yeah. definitely. For our high, low, prior attainment. Excellent. For us, uh, Em, what wisdom do you have to share with us? I think Alex is going to start yeah, from this one. We're going to go uh, chronologically we'll, we'll, through the poem. Yeah, we'll start from the top. So we're going to start with um, the the traveller that's met from an antique lamp. And again, if we just just quick, um, we come back to romanticism again. So the thing to remember about romanticism is it's it's extremely broad. It's a huge um, school of thought which talks about um, the individual as much as it talks about states and um, and countries, things like that. So if we talk about the um, the traveller from an antique land you probably will be aware that we're talking about um, degrees of separation between the speaker of the poem and Ozymandias, the the statue. So we have an unnamed traveller from an unnamed antique land. 
And the, the term antique itself has lots of um, connotations of something that's possibly ornamental, not necessarily important anymore, but also something that's been around for a long time and, has been, and it's, it's kind of like a, a universal tale, this idea of mankind's power being temporary um, and definitely well, doomed to fail in the, in, the face of, in the face of time and nature. Um, and and it, this first line really starts this kind of motif, which is really important in Ozymandias, which is anonymity, to, to be anonymous. Um, so the message, again, is, the, is that the power of, um, human, of humans is insignificant in the face of time and nature. Um, and the, so we've got this idea that the, the traveller is unnamed, the country is unnamed, and the artist who carved the statue so accurately, you know, who's, who um, got the features just right, uh, is it, all of that is lost. And yet the irony is, is that Ozymandias is lost as well. So just as just as um, the the unnamed traveller is is kind of forgotten before he's even known, and the land is gone, um, so is the so is the sculptor, and so is Ozymandias. So all of this, um, it's almost seems in, in the grand scheme of things like a totally futile exercise to, to build this huge statue when it was always, it was never going to last anyway. Yeah, this is, I mean, just, it's pretty depressing. No? Well, I, I don't think a romantic would see it that way because so you need, well, there's, well, and Shelley as well, but he's, he's, sort of, he's kind of railing against tyranny itself. So that the, um, the overpowerful individual um, I think he'd probably see it as quite a liberating idea. That, and, and this is stuff, again, we, we're going into other poems which we're not covering today, so we, we, we're speaking briefly before we started recording about tissue and about how um, our lives are not meant to last. Our legacies are not, we're not supposed to impose our legacy on people who come after us. And when we, do, when we tend to do that, or we try to do that, um, and you can look through history and, at any tyrant, um, it, there's always a body count. And it's always something to be avoided. I'm reminded of the great line from the Charlie Chaplin film, The, the Great Dictator, so long as men die, liberty shall never perish. Well, so I know there's some truth in that. <laughs> Would you quote that in your... In your I, uh, I think that, that is quotable uh, for anyone out there, any Charlie Chaplin fans listening. <laughs> well, I think it shows contextual appreciation in the modern context. <laughs> for me. So yeah, leading on from that, the idea that he tries to um, immortalise himself through the use of his statue, through the use of proclaiming his name for all to read, I am Ozymandias, King of Kings. And the idea that he thought he was going to be worshipped, he thought he was going to be respected, he thought that his sort of empire would last forever, but all we see of his empire is a crumbled statue, a colossal wreck. That obviously <coughs> being a metaphor for his for his pride, for his power, you know, all of that is destroyed in the poem. Um, the use of King of Kings here, obviously the allusion to Jesus, the idea he thought he was something much bigger than he was. He thought he was a ruler to be followed. He thought people would worship him almost in sort of a religious sense. But all of that was futile when nature and time took its toll, really. I think it's interesting you talk about the idea of anonymity. Do you think it's, it's a warning over hubris? Do you think it's the idea that we should all be anonymous? Because clearly there's a, there's a claim to make a difference, and that's what I find slightly jarring in the, in the idea about anonymity is that well, we should be anonymous, yet we should also make a difference. We should also live a certain way. Yeah, um, I, I think it's, I think it's kind of like you'd be thinking. You need to consider why would, why do you do what you do? 
So do you do it because you want to make a difference or do you do it because you want to be remembered? Um, so they look at, I think Shelley would look at someone like Ozymandias, um, who's, like you said, he's kind of like the epitome of hubris. He's bragging, um, he's, he's creating huge statues in his own image. None of that is serving the greater good, none of that is serving human um, progress. It's, it's self-serving. So if, you're, if your actions are purely selfish and purely self-serving, I don't think you can um, ever claim, well, by any, any kind of like modern Western standard which we're looking at here, you can, I don't think that would be seen as virtuous. I think you can see that in that use of the word pedestal, can't you? He puts himself on that literal, mm. I suppose, metaphorical pedestal there. He sees himself as much more important than anyone would ever see him in the future. And I think to answer Ted's question there, is this not depressing? I think it's important to remember that he, he wasn't a good ruler, you know, he was a tyrant. He commanded with the use of imperative, look upon my works, ye mighty and despair. This idea that he wanted people to fear him. He wanted people to despair in the presence of his power and his, and his greatness. And I think, although you say you think it's a depressing poem, I think as Alex said, you know, the romantics wouldn't see it this way. The romantics would say nature, time itself, the desert punishing a man who was overly confident. And I like that. I like how, it, it, like Shelley makes a point of talking about how um, on the, on the, the the, the statue itself, you know, the frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of, of cold command tell that it's, it's sculptor well, those passions read. And it's talking about how the sculptor, the sculptor was obviously extremely skilled in what they were doing, but the sculptor was also kind of um, showing for posterity what kind of tyrant, what kind of man this was. So it's almost a subversive act in that respect. Osman just wanted to be seen as something, who sh- somebody who, who is um, extremely powerful and um, impressive. And yet, and, and he, I'm sure he, um, when the sculptor, the word that he did, did definitely convey that, but what's also seen is that, you know, when it's shattered, when it's inevitably going to be broken, half sunk in the sand, it shows that he was cruel. It shows that he was kind of arbitrary in his use of power. It shows that he was a true tyrant and that he, he deserved, he, well, he deserved, or not necessarily deserved, but that this fall was inevitable. Um, and, there were, and it's almost kind of pathetic his a pathetic attempt to trying to trying to achieve immortality was, mm. was always going to fail. Um, so just as I think a favourite thing my kids when I teach them this like to point out is the irony of I'm stood in front of them and I'm telling you know nothing you do matters no one's going to remember <laughs> yeah. you which they of course love as 15, 16 yeah. year olds and then the thing they're always pointing out is right you're saying this Ozymandias guy he's a terrible person and Shelley's saying that nothing he did matters and yet Shelley or this narrator is telling us his story with his name. Mm. So that point you have about anonymity, he's the only kind of named character in this poem. Yeah. So is this, po- is this poem about anonymity and relating to us all and our experiences and what we need to do and how we need to live our lives or is this a warning to tyrants? Just because the, the focus on Ozymandias himself and the fact he is still remembered and, you know, Ramses II and the statue yeah. of him. And but they're not British celebrating him, are they? They're mocking him. You know, yeah. they even use the word mock in the poem. It's the idea that... He thought he was going to be remembered as a great ruler, but yeah. we're mocking him now. We're and laughing at him. And the difference him. between fame and infamy. infamy. Um, I, by the way, I really like that your kids re- react positively to that because I I talk about it and I get parental complaints. So um, about life being meaningless, I mean. <laughs> uh, so it's yeah, that's good. That's good to know. Well, you need to stop crying in your lessons. Right? You need to have a clear line between your personal and professional. <laughs> <laughs> um, and anything else we have to add on that language then? Um, yeah, and I just want to add on when we when we come to the end of the poem, um, it we talk about the he talks about the colossal wreck. Nothing besides remains around the decay of that colossal wreck. 
boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. So again, this is where we return back to the romantic idea and we talk about the, the, um, the idea of the sublime. Um, first of all, we have the irony that he's, he's, he's commanding um, the viewer to look on his works in despair and there are no works, everything's gone. All that's left is this broken statue. Um, but also that the, the sublime environment of the desert. So you remember I said before that to, to have a sublime experience is to, is to be put in your place as an individual mm -hmm. um, by kind of like an, a, an awesome display of nature's power or of nature's kind of vast, like vastness, um, which you can see. A lot of the time in romantic art, you see it in, in storms on the ocean. Um, but in Ozymandias it's seen in the desert. So you can imagine the, what the desert represents, it is eternity. Um, if, you're, if you're in the middle of a desert, all you can see that the horizon each way is just desert for as, far, as far as the eye can see. And in that environment, you're made to feel tiny and insignificant. And in that environment, Ozymandias is almost made to feel tiny and insignificant after the fact. Um, now, he's, now his statue's obviously disappeared and his works have, have gone as well. Um, just one of the things I like about the image of the desert for me is I always like, I, mean, I know we've talked a little bit about Ozymandias' vanity almost being punished, but I like the kind of the indifference of nature to the human toils that we go through, these mm. human experiences. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, it treats everyone mm. just the same. And yeah. The image, yeah, that lone and level. The image I always come back to is, uh, for any kind of fellow sci-fi nerds out there, I am legend. Uh, and when human, human societies crumbled and the yeah. vines and the, the animals start moving back into the city, taking yeah. back that urban landscape, yeah. possible link, uh, and kind of how nature is just waiting for us to kind of pass away and it will take back what is what is rightfully theirs. Yeah, definitely. And there's a destructive power to nature in this as well. You know, um, we've got shattered, broken, a wreck. Yeah. Um, it's it's it has it kind of like acts upon its environment as well as being acted upon it uh, acts upon us as well as as much as we act upon it nature's um, greatest weapon is its time yeah it's infinite patience for us to uh to get out of dodge so yeah. it can uh, carry on like we exactly. weren't there <laughs> yeah see it is depressing no it's not is it not you're wrong maybe for people who live there troubled life like you it, yeah it's because it's, you're you're uh, wound up in your own hubris and you want yeah. to take over the world it might be for you Type but for us here for us who are willing to be um, remembered only through our English podcasts, yeah. we actually find quite, quite a lot of comfort. But the fact you want to be remembered means you're comparable to Ozymandias because time will mean every, everyone forgets everything you've ever done. Mm. You'll be but dust in the wind, to quote uh, everyone's beloved. Well, quicker just... than that, they change the uh, perspectives as well. So, not so, the syllabus, sorry. Ah, oh, dear me. Anyway, anything on form and structure. It is depressing. Emily's just conceded, so I will take that point. Well, it's depressing you want to talk about form and structure. Alex and I were both talking. We both teach sort of top sets and we say there's nothing more frustrating than when a, a child thinks they're saying something clever about form or structure and it doesn't sort of work out on the page in the essay. So we didn't want to talk about it too much. I think it's important to comment a little, but mm. not too much. Well, I mean, we have kind of already commented on it about with the repetition of infants, that's, that's a structural point. It looks at how both poems ended as well, yeah. and the resounding message that came from the final lines. Which that I just think it's always a really, really important thing. A simple thing to do for structure. Poets spend so much time on how they begin poems yeah. and end poems, yeah. and that's so structurally mm -hmm. significant. And when you look at Ozymandias and that kind of, the poem almost peters out and ends in the image of almost looking to the rise and then looking at that, that metaphor for the stretch of time. That's such a well-structured way to finish the poem almost. Yeah, and it may be that what I, what I need to do is just to kind of like do my own kind of um, 
subject knowledge development in terms of structure to truly understand it. But at the moment, I found that it's uh, too often added on, mm-hmm. like just chucked in there as a as a just a something that's remembered at the end. And the examiner's never... report even said that this yeah. year, didn't it? You know, to warn people off discussing, um, especially form, I suppose, not structure yeah. in the sense that we've discussed it today on the podcast, but form especially. You know, is there anything less significant the fact it's a Petrarchan sonnet versus the quatrains mm. in London you know unless you're gonna use that structural comment to reinforce an argument you're already making which is probably come through language yeah, analysis yeah, yeah I think it's almost a cautionary tale isn't it yeah. a bit like Ozymandias so maybe. for instance for instance when we talk about, very well done uh, for instance when we talk about the um how the the structure and the enjambment used in London is often um I've seen it in revision guides um, described as mirroring Blake walking around the streets of London, and I just think when you when you're trying to find when you're trying to um, write perceptive individual responses, that doesn't really speak to to me. Well, I, I, can't best, imagine, yeah. Yeah, and I can't imagine the examiner reading it and thinking, right, that's that's a really good point. He's walking around London. That's almost implied. But I, I, I mean, in defence of analysis of form and structure, I think all you need to do is you need to find something simple and link that into your understanding of the poem. And sometimes it can be waffle, but half of English literature is your ability to make something of nothing, to say a lot oh, yeah. about something that's non-existent. Everything we've just said about Shelley and uh, Blake, we have no idea. How dare you? Well, I mean, it's an interpretation. <laughs> you have no we, idea. We've right, just no, prepared okay. for the podcast. That's hence hosting. But I mean, it's, it's <laughs> the obvious point, right, is Ozymandias, you know, kind of written in that structure format. You've used a word that I didn't even understand. But Ozymandias is basically a sonnet. Sonnets are typically love poems. So most candidates, most pupils are going to put across, well, it's ironic because it's, it's, it's a love poem. But if you really want to look at that a little bit deeper, you can talk about the complete absence of any notion of love or warmth in this poem. Yeah. That the poem is itself a desert of, of human emotion. And perhaps that represents that when you have an idea of self-importance and when you value yourself more than anyone else, you're never going to have any love in your life. And that's perhaps the true cautionary tale here is, is an absence of love renders your life truly meaningless. And only love itself can bring meaning to your life. So Which is a very romantic idea, isn't it? Exactly. So yeah. the song, the fact it's written in the romantic. song. I was going to yeah. say romantic with a lowercase r. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's what you've got to do. You've got to find the point that everyone else is going to make the use of enjoyment in certain poems or the kind of uh, the use of stanzas and just think about the poem in a little bit more detail and just try and offer something that just delving it into it a little bit deeper and giving your own personal interpretation. I don't think you need to have the most highfalutin technical terminology. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's what I think, yeah, that is why people go wrong, isn't it? With it, yeah. Yeah, it's like it, yeah. As long as the uh, the tail doesn't wag the dog. Okay, you yeah. I'll sure uh, that use sense. that expression that in the rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> we, did, we didn't like it then. Yeah, we don't like it now. We know. Um, so uh, I think that is all we have time for today on this Saturday morning. So Absolutely. next time, when people ask us what we do in our free time, we, we can, can play them this. We can play them this. Uh, all the, all that suspicions confirmed. If you have managed to stay through to the end, we thank you for your time and. Uh, we hope that you take the knowledge that you've gleaned, if any, from this podcast and that it helps you in your assessments and your classes. And as the romantics would say, nothing you do matters. Everything is a waste of time. And as Al said, think about the best way to lead your life. Don't get caught up in those institutions. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a lovely Thank day. Thank you. Bye bye.